Welcome to C-Suite Radio. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. It's time for another edition of The Brett Allen Show. It's go time, you and me. Join us weekly for the latest pop culture interviews from your favorite TV shows, movies, comedians, and so much more. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. You feel good. Plus, you never know who will drop by. What happened here was a miracle. Now, here is your host. I said throw down, boy. Welcome to the night's main event. Brett Allen. Today on the podcast, the Brett Allen Show. Thanks, well, first everybody for watching and listening and supporting the show. I have a very special guest. I'm excited. Comedian Bill Dawes, very diversified in all that he does. I don't know exactly what we can talk about as far as everything is going. It seems like we're coming to an end. We'll focus on your comedy career. Um, but thanks for your time, man. It's a pleasure to meet you. I appreciate I it. I said we're coming to an end. I thought you were talking about my career. And I was like, okay, valid point. No, <laughs> no I, I don't think that's the case. I meant the other. Well, the writers are almost done. Hopefully the actors are are close behind. I mean, um, the actors don't don't follow suit this week or next. And then I'm, I'm going to go kill the nanny. Because the only reason <laughs> the actors even started it was because of the writers. Right. The writer kind of dragged us in. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like a bait and switch. You can't like get us all ramped up to be on your side and then make an agreement and not make sure that we have our agreement. So I think it's it's probably the last I heard was the producers went to SAG and said, this is our final offer. I think they did to both SAG and WGA and WGA okay. is taking it, but we haven't heard from SAG yet. So maybe they're holding on a little bit longer. I don't know. Well, it's funny. I'm glad we're talking about this. This is very cool to have your perspective because I've talked to other actors prior to this happening, the at least the the uh, SAG after part, um, yeah. and they had a lot to say. But now that we're in the midst of it, I mean, we had George Clooney of all people give his two cents on it. I don't know if you saw that, but he said something interesting. No, he goes, "I know you're not interested in hearing about me talking about suffering because that's would fall on deaf ears. But I will tell you, there's 164,000 other actors out there." Uh, who are not in my position. I've had a very good career basically saying, Hey, let's bring this to an end because there's a lot of people that are suffering and everybody's like, please keep this man safe at all costs because <laughs> he's championing basically for everybody else who would be considered blue collar, who work hard, like you have in your past career, things that you've done. So I, I hope we're close but it brings me to a very interesting point that I do want to talk about with you because you are very diversified in what you do. Obviously, the comedy part of it, the stand-up, which you were on a friend of mine's podcast, Hot Breath with Joel Byers. That was a oh, yeah. great interview. Yeah, I've known Joel forever, and we've helped each other out in the past. But you are very diversified in what you do. As a content creator, an artist creative, is it important to be able to diversify especially when we're in times like this where there aren't certain things that you can do but you can still travel and do stand-up yeah no it's a good question i had a, a friend of mine a really uh great actress named kim director and she's done i mean 
just in terms of her pedigree, her resume is way more impressive than mine. I mean, she's been in, I think, seven Spike Lee films. Oh, wow. She's had regular roles on like four or five TV shows as a series regular. Um, and she, you know, I don't want, I hope this is divulging, but, but she's had, you know, parts of her life where she's had to struggle and find kind of different ways to make money. Yeah. Support her, her lifestyle and just like makeup and auditions and all the things that, that a, a female actress would need to, to use to kind of keep their career going. And she said to me just probably like a few months ago, she goes, you're so lucky that you got into stand-up comedy because I think now Kim has to go like teach Pilates or something. Cause she had literally no other source of revenue. Um, and it's funny cause, cause I'm looking at it going like, wait, I didn't get into comedy cause I was, I needed an additional source of income. Yeah. I got into comedy because I was doing New York theater and I was so sick of these. Am I allowed to curse? And you're, you're good. Yeah. You're totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> you're okay. I'm so, I'm so used to like so many directors and, and, particularly new playwrights in New York. And there's some brilliant ones I worked with. David Lindsay, a bear. There's some that are amazing, but a lot of them are also fucking idiots, you know? Yeah. And they, they think because they wrote a play that it's the Torah and that they divinely shat their words from the asshole of Krishna. <laughs> and you have to like, Oh, thank you so much for giving it to us lowly actors. It's sort of like the David Mamet philosophy about, um, and obviously you can't, I'm not going to crap on David Mamet as a playwright. He's obviously a brilliant playwright, but watch David Mamet direct a movie or a play. And you're like, there's no, there's not a human being in this fucking production because right. he, he wants it so much about the language that as an actor, you kind of can't, he, he thinks any, any emoting or adding any zhuzh to it destroys the integrity of his language. And you're kind of like, well, you're, you're, not the f you're, not, you're not Shakespeare, calm down. But he, uh, <laughs> And I just, you know, he wrote a book called True and False when I was coming to school, which is a very popular acting book, which is basically just about like, say the words as honest as you can with the, um, that the playwright wrote and don't try to do some substitution as if Meisner, he's like, it's all bullshit. Just say the words and mean it. And in a way he's right, but in a way also like, go eat a dick, David Mamet. You know what I mean? Because the <laughs> truth is the best stuff that you'll ever see on film is not, is not the words written by the writer true it is not that's never the best shit on film the best shit in film is are the mistakes the happy accidents the improvs um always i mean you look back i, I, I mean the godfather is a perfect example how many great moments in a godfather were completely not supposed to be in were really in the script right whether it's sunny you know being a hell of a guy with a trash can and they let it roll for or the other actor not realizing that there was a horse an actual horse head in his bed and discovering it there's just a lot of these moments that kind of, um, I think, uh, in my opinion, I was getting to the point to get to the comedy thing. I was getting to the point where I uh, was getting really sick of being told, like, you're just an actor. Just say the lines. Just mm. say the, yeah. And I was kind of like, well, but I think this word would be, if we use a different word here, it'd be better. <laughs> Cute, Bill. But this play won awards in the West End. It kind of all started when I did this play called Burning Blue, which was... Uh, off-Broadway play had a great role and it. it was a dream role. I don't want to get into the details of it, but it was um it wasn't a great play. I guess it had some uh it got some attention on the West End in London because like people are showing their dicks in it, which is like, ooh, in like New York <laughs> theater, if you show a dick like, ooh, you're moving to Broadway. Um, you can have like very <laughs> mediocre plays like Take Me Out. 
or, you know, but a bunch of hot guys with their dicks out. So I was in a hot guys with their dicks out play. And, um, and it was, a, it was an average play when it got to New York. This is after September 11th, of course, got to New York and no one really gave a shit about gays in the military as a theme the year after September 11th. So, um, it was one of my first big roles off Broadway. Anyway, the, he, he kept like henpecking me about lines and choices and words. If I changed one word, he would get on me. And it just started really getting to me because I was like, I, I go, I'm trying to help your play. I'm trying to fix your play and make it better because a couple of these lines aren't as funny as they would be. And he gave me permission to change one line one time and it killed because it was a comedy line. And then he told me to change it back for no other reason than his ego. And it just started getting to me that I was like, wait, if, if I think I know what what's funny and what comedy is, and I think I know how to do some writing, then what are my options? And so I had some friends who were doing stand-up comedy, and they said, why don't you come do it? And I was like, to me, stand-up comedy, I guess at the time, Dane Cook was really big, because this is like, it wasn't really until 2005 where I started. Okay. And uh, so Dane, and, and I, you know, Dane Cook, I think a lot of people... They don't admit it now, but I think a lot of people got into comedy because of Dane Cook. I mean, honestly, a lot of guys, because before Dane Cook, comedy was like, you're either like the dude with the, the leather jacket smoking, who was just so crazy, or you were the guy with the blazer and the jeans. You were either like Dice or Seinfeld. There was no like, there was no just. Yeah, there's no dude. So then Dane shows up with his ba backwards baseball cap and Bruins jersey. And you're like, oh, this is a comic. This isn't what we see in comedy. You'd seen that in the acting world. There'd been people who play that role, like the Adam Sandler roles, you know, the '90s and stuff. But you hadn't really seen that in, in just stand up. So, um, so I think it kind of like really, uh, I think it galvanized a lot of like people who thought they were funny, or maybe were former jocks, or just kind of dudes, or even frat guys. Go like, oh, maybe this is maybe I can actually do this. I don't have to be like either uh you know andrew dice clay or, or seinfeld i don't have to be a nerd i don't have to be a a tough guy i could just be like a dude you know it's funny because dane isn't really a dude but he he was able to like <laughs> sort of do enough cultural appropriation to be that guy uh, and like i think he was brilliant i think when he started off he was he was a brilliant comic he is still is a really brilliant comic in my opinion but so at the time i was being told that my opinions didn't matter my thoughts didn't matter my improv didn't matter and i was watching another a comic come up get enormous who in from optics at the time was like me just like a regular guy who didn't do all that much observational clean comedy it was physical comedy it was goofy it was just silly thoughts sometimes so i think that's kind of what was like okay what if i maybe I could do stand-up if I can get into it through like a physical lens or perspective. And that's, so when I started, everything I was doing was kind of somewhat physical comedy based. And I think if it wasn't for Dane, I don't think I ever would have tried that. But so my interest in comedy was mostly about uh, being told how dumb I am as an actor. And <laughs> That's crazy and to my, hear you say that. Yeah. You know, I mean, but it's not like me specifically, but just like in general actors being treated like they're fucking dumb. And it, it's, you know, it's gone through my whole, my whole career. The last play I did, I played Rudolf Nureyev, who was a gay Russian ballet dancer. And, um, and the play was, was, a, was, a, it was three hours. It was a fucking mess, man. It was a two person play that was literally like two and a half hours or something. I'm like, 
was like, bring on the dancing elephants. This is horseshit. So I kept pushing for cuts and the director of the acting, okay, let's cut this cut. The playwright from Chicago, some fucking nerd, he, he flies in to, uh, you know, see what's going on. And he was, and we went over cuts and he, he kind of allowed and agreed most of them. But then at one point he said, you know, actually sometimes I do listen to actors. Like I've gotten trouble for listening to actors before. You know, and I said, I said, interesting. I said, you know who who uh, listens to actors a lot and works with actors a lot and lets them kind of come up with ideas and create things and pitch in all the time? Uh, Tom McHale and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who just have Hamilton on Broadway right now. You know, that is a collaborative process. So the fact that you, as genius as Lin is and genius as Tommy is, like they also had a lot of brilliant actors with a lot of egos and they were... But Lynn and Tommy are smart enough and brilliant enough to negotiate all those people and collaborate and to make the best musical of all time. And here's this guy doing like a shitty off-off Broadway play that he's like, I guess I could listen to. So the good thing about comedy is that it gave me a, another outlet. The bad thing is got me a little bit spoiled in terms of like my opinion about what is funny. <laughs> what I do think, you know. I love it. I, I think that's so smart because I find what comedians do. It's interesting. Like you take a Joel McHale who's been part of both worlds. And when he does yeah. a live show, the audience is split, whether they're coming to see him from mm -hmm. parks and rec or, or not parks and rec uh, community, community or just because he's funny and he's a comedian. So yeah. that would lead me to my next question because you've done theater, Broadway off Broadway, all of this. And now comedy, what is your audience when people come see you? Is it mostly familiar with your stand-up or do they know you from other things that you've done, maybe television well, or Broadway or off-Broadway or whatever the case might be? You know, I haven't really, uh, I, I think mostly people become because of uh, comedy. Okay. I think that, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, like, I think most people, most people come to see comics or the comedy usually. Um, and then you have maybe like 10, 20% that come for like, you could have a comic who's a crowd work comic and they come to see the crowd work and then they see a comic doing a set and they're like, wait, I thought it was just going to be crowd work. So that does happen. But, um, but unless you're really famous, like, like I write and tour with Jeremy Piven and, uh, and Piven was obviously so famous that people come to see him because of Ari Gold. Ari Gold, basically. Not even for the other things, but mostly Ari Gold. Um, now, for him to get to the point where it switches over and people come to see him mostly for stand-up, um, I think would be it, it, it would be a few years down the road and he'd have to really make a splash in the stand-up world. So, um, like right now, I, I don't have anything I've done acting-wise that's um, that's iconic, you know? I mean, I keep hoping for it. But every role, every every role I do, that kind of like, oh, this is gonna be a big one. It's kind of like, so there are people, there are definitely people who come who see me in different things. Um, but also, let's say for example, someone saw me in Alaska Daily and they really liked Alaska Daily and they're a huge fan of Alaska Daily, which probably means they're like a middle-aged housewife from the Midwest. I enjoyed um, it. I had several of your castmates on from this. Oh yeah, I had probably three or four oh. ancillary supporting 
actors come on yeah i it was a great show i loved it and they're they're great and you know and i and it was a great experience but the point is i don't think that person that's going to i don't think that's going to translate into a ticket sale for a comedy club Uh, that's funny yeah they bill you as comedian bill dawes as seen in alaska daily like it's probably not (laughs) um interesting that's cool that you write and tour with jeremy i mean obviously I knew him from Entourage clearly, and I knew that he did comedy, but I didn't realize it was such a big part of his life. I saw him, I think it was in San Francisco at Cobbs. I saw you in San Francisco for sure. It's interesting. Like, I think that's where it was. You, what you do is so interesting and that you're able to split the two worlds and have success. What I feel is success in both worlds I wanted to ask you, I do consider you to be successful, obviously, because of the platform you have. What do you feel has been key in your success outside of the talent and just being available to do it? Is there any one particular thing, being kind to people is big? Like what what is important to you to help you continue to grow? Well, it's funny you said because in my head, I'm like, I'm like, am I successful? I go back, I waver. There are patches where I feel successful and patches where I'm like, what am I doing? I should have been an engineer. Um, I think, I, I, so I, I don't, so I, I, on one level, I'm not the person to ask because I don't have this like massive, but I think that that what what I see with other people and even for myself, what pays off is one, I mean, obviously you can't ever underestimate work ethic, you know? Right. And I think one of the things that I kind of had to come to terms with when I was uh, growing up was, uh, I, I was pretty naturally good at a lot of things. I was, I was pretty athletic in a lot of things. Um, so I, I wasn't like a bro, but I was a pretty good natural athlete. And so because I was a natural athlete, I would watch movies like The Natural or watch movies about these people who were like great athletes, like Babe Ruth, who like just got drunk and fucked women, didn't give a shit. And I always thought that was cool to be a natural who didn't who didn't put in the work. You know what I mean? So yeah, I had no, like this I get it. Bizarre pride about like, and and so what it meant was like I was a good soccer player, like I was like, you know, all district and all region, all that shit. But I wasn't a great soccer player. You know what I mean? It means that I was like, a, I'm a good jujitsu guy. I'm not a great jujitsu guy. It means that like I'm a good comic, and sometimes I'm like, wow, I could be a better comic if I really, because particularly when I first started comedy, people were like, do you write? I was like, I don't write, man. I just like get some ideas and I go up there. And I was so proud of myself. But the truth is like the people that I really, really admire are the comics that write every day. So I, I've I've had to kind of uh, change my perspective. And, um, you know, you realize that the, the best people of all time are the people who have whatever talent. Like, I, I, I guess here's how I'd look at it. You have the people, you have the, the level of talent, right? Like here's let me look, here here's a level of talent here's a level of talent right that if you're at this level of talent, you can work super hard and be here right and be be way above this person come off better this person get bigger laughs this person who's just ra- resting on their natural talent but this person works hard then they're going to be up mm-hmm. there so that's why the people you know all the stories about. Michael Jordan and Lionel Messi and all, the stories about all the true, true goats 
they all work like fucking maniacs. Patton Oswalt's writing all the time, working all the time, doing hours and fucking Silver Lake. So the the true goats, if you want to be a goat, and obviously, like, I have no aspiration to be a goat, but you always want to be the best you can be. And so strive to be the goat for yourself. So I've had to kind of come to terms with the fact that, like, I have to, that my discipline uh, is always in question. I always have to improve and I always, and I always have to recognize the fact that hard work will pay off more than talent. Very true. Yeah. I think I've, if I went back and listened to the episodes that I've done and great people I've interviewed, obviously present company company included yourself. I think that is like a theme, a, a golden thread to all the conversations that hard work always wins the day you know because you just have to do it like if you don't you won't get to the level that you want to get to or maybe perhaps even grow because like you could just sit there and coast on your success like when i pitch people to come on the show there was a point where i was like i've had this person and that person and that's gonna get me in the door with somebody else and that's far from true. It's like, who cares? We don't really care. We just want yeah. to know how hard you're working and are you getting better at what you do? You said something interesting about Dane Cook, and I want to ask you about this. And crowd work comics that you see this TikTok now is huge. Clips of comics doing crowd work, and then their list of cities come up that they're coming to. Not that that's yeah. bad, but I want to ask you, I mean, obviously... For Dane, social media was not really a thing, but he mastered MySpace. Now it seems like the days have gone by where comics do morning radio. They still do it, but now it's posting on social media. Hey, I'm sure. going to be in your town. Uh, come yeah. see me. How important is social media to what you do now? I mean, it's obviously clearly important. Let me rephrase the question. Is social media, does that play an equal part in success of filling out a club now versus just you getting booked? If that question mm -hmm. makes sense, it's kind of multi-layered, yeah, but I'm I mean, interested I, I, to know. Yeah, I also think the it kind of ties into what we were saying, because the people who really the people who are really posting with the social media and doing this stuff and 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 curating, creating and and working with people, it ties into the work ethic too, okay. right? The people and, and I will say this specifically because, you know, the, the the comic that everyone's talking about in terms of this is Matt Reif. And Matt Reif was my yeah. my feature for for, uh, for several years before he blew up. He was my feature. And he's one of the people who featured for me. And he um and he he's a very diligent guy. You know what I mean? He's always been a pretty I mean, he he parties and whatever. And he, he can't have enough baseball bats to knock the women away. But at the same time, like he um he works hard and he really cares about the craft. So uh so it's not that he was just a guy who got lucky on some crowd work because of social media it's not like dan cook got lucky because of myspace dan cook uh, they leveraged it would, well yeah they leveraged well but i would also say this which people would know or don't know unless they sometimes it's hard to know because people's reactions at comedy clubs can be based on their fame level too but but that's not necessarily the case because yeah, i just i just you know had a show and kevin hart was on it two days ago and Kevin Hart's obviously you can't really get bigger than Kevin Hart. And Kevin Hart was just working out new shit. And the audience was there, but the, he didn't do nearly as well as some of the other comics who would who are working on their A material that they'd honed for years. But Kevin's such a pro and he's so natural. He was able to go up there and just tell a story that he had with his family in Africa. 
that he probably only said out loud a couple times. You know what I mean? And he still had the audience engaged and the audience laughing, but it wasn't it wasn't crazy. It was just like, okay, you know, people, he's affable. He's he's got natural talent. If I try to do a, a story out of, out of the gate, it just I would <laughs> eat eat a dick. But um, I guess my point is what people don't realize about Dane or even remember about Dane, when Dane was doing live shows in 2002, three, four, five, six, he, he would, I mean, he would blow the fucking roof off the place. Yeah. I mean, and he was up, he, it'd be a murderer's row with like Joy, Joe Coy, Ralphie May, Alonzo Bodden, Mitch Mullaney, um, uh, Bobby Lee, all these fucking monsters on these shows. And Dane Cook would blow the fucking roof. I mean, in a way that is, and I, I don't mean when he when he got off stage or got on stage, like in the middle of a set. It was it was kind of he, he could do he could do something pretty magical that very 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 few people I've ever seen be able to do, which is to create this like roll of laughter that would last through his entire twenty five minute set or whatever. Um. So and like and Matt Reif, whatever people want to say about him, because of course they're haters and stuff. Um. He, he is good at crowd work. You know, he did wild and out. He he honed his skill to like smack down people. That, that's what he does with his friends. It's kind of his natural thing that he likes to go to as a person. So, um, so he's good at it. So it's not just like you do social media and you, you push social media and you become famous and you get the tours. You have to be really good at it too. And I just, I, I see it mostly a positive thing because I see what gets born out is people who are like someone like Samuel Bade. I don't know if you know Samuel Bade. Samuel, oh, Bade, yeah. Samuel Bade. I mean, I think he's one of the best writers in comedy. I think he's untouchable. I think he's up there with Patton and you know some of the goats. And um, he he's not the most. He, he, he doesn't look like Matt Rife. He doesn't. He's not dynamic like Dane on stage necessarily. Um, but he's a brilliant writer and he writes has really great reversals and great wordplay and a lot of there's a lot of arithmetic to his joke and a lot of just interesting like calculus to the way that he formulates his bits. And um, he's now just by consistently posting and exposing his comedy to people, he is now doing a world tour and he has way more followers than I'd have. And so I, I do think that the, the social media, although you can get people who I guess get huge with very little talent who don't have great acts but in general, I feel like it's almost an example of the cream rising to the top. So I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, the flip side is you could say people who who get huge from doing Vine videos or let's look at something like King Batch, right? Um, King Batch got huge from Vine, became a big actor, has 25 million views. Um, and he, you know, when he started doing comedy, everyone, same with Trevor Wallace, everyone want to hate him. Oh, he's not that good. Like, He's been doing it for five months. <laughs> Asshole, relax. And now, Trevor Wallace and King Batch are untouchable. I mean, they're great. They're they're great comics. They command a crowd. They they, if you're given the opportunity for whatever reason, fame or movies or pocket, and, and then you're able to capitalize on it, great. So I, I think social media is, if anything, it's it's kind of like a like when you go sunning at the beach, you put on an accelerator. It's an accelerator. Yeah. It's not going to make. It's not going to be the the sun, but it's going to accelerate the sun. You know, so I, I, I don't have a problem with it. You know, I love it. I think it's all very fascinating. One last question here: Looking at your career and all the things that you've done, really, has there ever been 
somebody that you have come across, whether it's in the theater or comedy world, somebody that you admire that has just spoken into your life and given you advice that really has helped you go, hey, this is great. Yeah. I mean, ironically, there's not a lot of people in in comedy. It's very competitive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For some reason, in comedy, I don't really, there's not a lot of people. No one's really taken me under their wing in comedy for better, other than Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory. So I will give it to him. Jamie Masada, you know, and, and sometimes he's like the baseball coach in high school. He's like, hey, get over here, you piece of shit. What are you doing? So he's he's given me some tough love. There are times where um, I couldn't go on stage unless I sat on a chair for my whole set. Or I had to do, I used to do a Russian character named, uh, I'm Yorgi, I'm from Moldova. He's like, wait, race of Russia. I would do this character. And one time I think I even did an Indian character for like a month. And he he was just kind of like training me you know, break up old calcified habits about my performing, me being way too physical and and bits, whereas truly I was overcompensating for the lack of writing and the lack of comfortability I had just staying in the pocket. So he was one of them. In terms of acting and stuff like that, I would say to the biggest, the few people in my life who I'd really look to is my acting teacher, Ron Van Lu at NYU, who, um, you know, I, I I was never a great student. You know, I went to NYU for grad school. I was never a great student. I was just kind of like late and I was just trying to get laid. And I was just had, I, I had bad diction. I had a terrible singing voice. I had a bad theater voice. Um, but he just always liked me and just and just kind of thought that I was special. And that was enough for me to get through grad school. And the other thing was there was a guy, my acting mentor, uh, Jeff Weiss, who was like, he was just like, like an old East Village queen. And when I was in grad school having time, I would go do these plays with him called Hot Keys in the East Village. And he would write on an old typewriter. I and mean, it wasn't that, it was like the late 90s. It wasn't like that crazy. But he'd write in this old uh, typewriter and and smoke weed and ask me if I want to smoke. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's smoking weed and he's writing a play. I, I couldn't believe it at the time. And then he would smoke weed before he performed. And I remember one time I was like, Jeff, you're smoking weed before you do the show. He was like, hey, buddy, it's not Chekhov. You know, just climb up to the mountain and jump off. And and he introduced this element of freedom, which was so antithetical to everything I learned in graduate school. It's just like, and it's probably part of the reason why I got into stand-up comedy. Because from him, it was just like, at the end of the day, it's silly and it's fun. And you're doing make-believe and you're pretending. Like, don't take yourself so seriously. Like, if you fuck up, big fucking deal it's great you're already you're already in a state of humiliation as a performer so don't worry if you fuck up i mean some of the best things moments of snl are moments where you people are fucking up that's what everyone thinks about yeah even movies like uh gardens of the galaxy where chris pratt is given the the infinity ball and he almost drops it which is an actual fuck up that happened it's one of the best moments in the movie so he gave me the freedom to kind of let it go a little bit. Um, Ron gave me the tools for acting. Jamie gave me the discipline for comedy. And then just in terms of everyone else, I just look at Tommy Kale, who the director of, you know, Hamilton, who directed me on Broadway for nine months, a play called Lombardi. And just an ability, you know, his his ability to lead and to, you know, galvanize a group of egocentric <laughs> alpha male actors who were all vying, you know, trying to get their balls on the plate. He, um, was really incredible negotiating. I mean, it was like Chris Chris Sullivan from This Is Us, Rob Riley from Dynasty, and me. We're all like these athletes, fucking dudes with the fucking. And he was able to kind of 
get us all working together and, and, and loving each other and dealing with a lot of egos. And I think that, and he, in the meantime, he never made his ego part of the journey. You know, he kind of took a back seat. And uh, so I looked to Tommy Kale as someone who I think is just, he's also probably the smartest person I've ever known. So that's easy for him to do that. But so I look at people who are able to be humble um, despite their success. I look at the people who work really hard, the people who are allowed to be fun and free. And those are the people in my life that I think have given me the most, you know, joy in this business. Cause then the day, if it's not fun, why the fuck are we doing it? You know, I love it. Well, with that, I want to say thank you. I know you're very busy being a parent and getting uh-huh. all those things done, but uh, we will put links to your website where we show this on YouTube. And then of course our podcast, but thanks Bill for your time. I really appreciate you. Thank man. you. This has thank been you, great. Man, thank Absolutely. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening and being a part of today's conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. It's absolutely free. A major proportion. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. And remember, we care.